You may turn to Luke chapter 2, but before we get to that portion of Scripture, I'd just like to talk a little bit about one of the most popular Christmas carols in the Western world. I've been doing a little bit of research behind the carols that we sing, um, and I'm just discovering so much. It's just amazing. The text uh, from Joy to the World is considered one of the most joyous Christmas hymns in existence, Uh, not so much in the sense of merrymaking, but in the deep and solemn realization of what Christ's birth has meant for people, all people. Uh, The verses were paraphrased from Psalm 98, my reading for today, by Isaac Watts and put into a hymnal entitled Psalms of David, Imitate It, in the language of the New Testament, and that was written in 1719. Uh, Last week I said that we do blend our services, our worship, from contemporary music to uh, hymns from the past, and 1719 is a ways back, but such rich heritage, we stand on the shoulders in our sacred worship. He did that and paraphrased all 150 psalms save 12, And in his words, he did not think that those 12 fit his purpose. (laughs) Needless to say, he was a radical churchman, and he got in trouble with his people of his day. So, Joy to the World is his paraphrase of the last half of Psalm 98, which reads, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth, and he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Psalm 98 rejoices over God's protection of his chosen people, Israel, and extols his righteousness. It anticipates a future time when Yahweh will reign supremely over the earth and all the nation will be under him. It's a unique song in the fact that it really highlights the second coming, not so much his first advent. One biographer wrote this, Isaac Watts is known as the father of English hymnody. That's quite a title. His poetry remains his lasting legacy and earned him acclaim with both sides of, on both sides of the Atlantic. Ben, Benjamin Franklin published his hymnal. Cotton Mather, a Puritan, maintained a long correspondence with him, and John Wesley acknowledged him as a genius. Although Watts maintained that Charles Wesley's wrestling Jacob was worth all of his hymns together. So that's quite high esteem for this man. Watts was a literary genius, and this became quite clear early in his life. When he was five years old, he was learning Latin, five years old, at nine, Greek, at 11, French, and he wanted to learn French so he could converse with his neighbors who were refugees from France. And at 13, he finally delved into Hebrew. Okay, he was also an ardent student of theology, philosophy, and logic, and wrote books in each of these areas. As a little project, when he was seven years old, 
You can help me here, Micah. He did an acrostic of his name. I am a vile, polluted lump of earth, so I've continued ever since my birth. Although Yahweh grace does daily give me, as sure this monster Satan will deceive me, come therefore, Lord, from Satan's claws, relieve me. Isaac. (laughs) Wash me in your blood, O Christ, and grace divine impart, then search and try the corners of my heart, that I in all things may be fit to do service to you and your praise too. Seven years old. So if you have a child that's doing acrostics at seven, please come and show me. We may have another Watts on our hands. With such a developed theology at such a young age, it was excruciating for him as a teenager to participate in the metric psalm singing of his day. You see, though the German Lutherans had been singing hymns for a hundred years, John Calvin had urged his followers to sing only metrical psalms, and the English Protestants followed Calvin's lead. So they were just singing metrical psalms. He once commented on the lackadaisical congregational singing of metrical psalms, quote, to see all the dull indifference, the negligent and thoughtless air that stirs upon the faces of the whole assembly while the psalm is upon their lips might even tempt a charitable observer to suspect the fervency of their inward religion. He was calling them hypocrites. Watts didn't reject metrical psalms. He simply wanted to see them more impassioned He wanted to see the congregation sing with heart, kind of like you all do. They ought to be translated in such a manner as we have reason to believe David would have composed them if he had lived in our own day, he wrote. He took creative license by paraphrasing the Psalms. It was in his teenage years when he voiced this discontent to his father, and his father challenged him, well then, young man, why don't you give us something better to sing? That was not the right thing to do to Watts. <laughs> so at 18, Watts produced his first hymn, to which the congregational response was enthusiastic. And as was Watts' way, for the next two years, he wrote a new hymn, text, for his congregation each week. He published a collection of 210 hymns in 1707. That hymnal together with the one he produced in 1719, which contains Joy to the World, are considered the first real hymnals in the English language, hence the father of Christian hymnody. Oh, but the pushback. There's always pushback. Watts incorporated a method of hymnody known as human composure hymns human composure hymns. A departure from the traditional metrical psalms typically sung at that time in the church. And this departure from conventional hymnody marked him as a radical churchman. Human composure was the expression based entirely on one's own thoughts and words, a deviation from the scripture in some minds. Such human composure has given to us songs such as When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Nearer My God to Thee, 
Alas, and did my Savior die? O God, our help in ages past, and I sing the mighty power of God. Creative license. Many in the church rebuked him. Many in the church would not sing his songs, and now everyone does. Back to the carol, Joy to the World. It's really quite strange that the carol has been such a favorite since its creation because it really talks about the second coming of Advent, his second Advent more than his birth, even though the first verse lends to Christ's nativity. Or you can extrapolate it from it. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let the earth receive her king. Stanzas one, two, and three, or one, two, and four. One, two, and four are easily seen in Psalm 98, but verse three is not. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. It was that verse in the first months of my salvation that just stood out like in, in flashing neon as we sang it. It was my first Christmas as a believer. I was 19, well, 20 years old, 19 years old, I think. And uh, it was the first time that those words came to life to me. I just said, far as the curse is found. And I knew about that from Genesis because I was starting in the beginning and reading in Genesis What a shame to leave those verses out because a lot of churches don't sing uh, that verse. Because the third stanza provides a reason for the joy as sung throughout the rest of the hymn. It is a direct reference to Genesis 3 and the curse that covered the earth and her inhabitants, us, as a result of Adam's sin. Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, You shall surely die. And then God said, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. The curse. It's exactly what he is talking about. But God, in his mercy and grace, sent Jesus to turn things around. And as the third stanza declares, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Christ's death is the answer for sin. And the curse brought with it. Therefore we all sing today, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Just a mention about the melody that we sing. A contemporary of Watts, one George Frederick Handel, though he did not, they didn't know each other, they were contemporaries. Handel's monumental work, The Messiah, provides our carol with unforgettable melody. One historian has written, the opening bars of the chorus, lift up your heads, was adapted to the initial words of joy to the world. You see, at that time, they thought such borrowings from great composers would bring the aesthetic notion that music of great musicians had in itself an innate beauty. And so they welded these two geniuses together. Again, creative license. Creative license. Creativity is beautiful. It's actually a mark of our creator God, right? And we as Christians should be the most creative people in the entire world. And yet even today, we anathema creative license. 
watch ourselves. Let's watch ourselves. Let the creatives create and let us rejoice with them. Well, Luke 2, verses 8 through 11 is a text that I'd like to talk to you about today because in it is contained mega joy. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in their fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, mega joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the gift of creativity. We thank you for your word, which, which stays the creativity and contains the creativity to stay in touch with reality. And Lord, we are grateful for these words that tell us about the good news that brings great joy with it. We pray, Father, that you open the eyes of our understanding today through this text, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that we see is that the news that was brought to these shepherds was good, the source of the great joy. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news. Taking into consideration the times in which the angel came to Israel with this specific message, it was a time that they needed some good news. People were weary of waiting of putting up with all that they had to put up with, and they were wondering when God's promises would come to pass. They were waiting for a Messiah. Many were weighted down by the lives that they were living and longed for change, and the change that could only be brought about by Messiah, and they knew that. Isaiah described the people and their condition centuries early in a uh, prophecy, I believe it was 300 years earlier, When he prophesied, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners and to comfort all who mourn. And so this angel came at a time when the people were afflicted, brokenhearted, captive and prisoners and they were deeply mourning. The angel proclaimed, I bring you good news. Proverbs tells us that good news from a far country is like cold water to a weary soul. Uh, I lived in a far country once, and it was always a joy for the airplane to land once every three or four months and bring us our mail. And we would get news from back home in the States, and boy, It was almost like Christmas every three or four months because we got to open those letters and read the good news from back home. Isaiah also sang the glories of those who brought good news, saying, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. I once told my children, I have very beautiful feet. They're just little kids and they they looked at me like, weird, you're weird. And I said, no, the scriptures say that I have lovely feet, because I have brought good news to the Taliabu. It says, how lovely 
are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, good news of happiness, good news of great joy, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Well, we're not Jewish, but we are world-weary. In much the same way that the Jews were at the time of Christ's first advent, as they sat and waited and longed for Messiah, we sit and wait and long, anticipate our Lord's second return, his second coming, don't we? We long for his reign on earth to come. Listen to some of the statistics that I've read over the past week. Brace yourself, they're bad news. Life expectancy actually dropped for Americans in 2011, largely due to the increase in despair deaths. Yep, it's a term, despair deaths. Brought about by the increase of alcohol, drugs, and suicide, drug overdose deaths rose 400%. Drug overdose death rose 400% between 2000 and 2020. Between 1991 and 2017, medical administration of opioids increased from 76 million prescriptions in 1991 to 259 million, equaling to be two prescriptions for every adult in America. Why do people need opioids? What are we trying to sedate here? Per capita use of legally dispensed drugs increased 50-fold between 1980 and 2020. 2018, a staggering 71% of children born to women under 24 years of age were born out of wedlock. And over 50% of children born to millennials today are born out of wedlock. The family is just about kaput. Just about kaput. And how does our culture deal with such depressing news? By amusement, video gaming, a $40 billion industry at the turn of the century, I'm talking 2000, $40 billion a year was spent on video gaming in 2000, ballooned to $160 billion industry by 2020. $160 billion. Surpassing the music and movie industry 15-fold and is double that of the entire sports industry. So how do we deal as a culture with the bad news that we're living with day in and day out? We basically use augmented reality, either by drugs, alcohol, or video gaming. Don't tell me we don't need some good news, right? Our present culture is the epitome of those who are, as Isaiah said, afflicted, brokenhearted, prisoners. Don't tell me that an addict is not a prisoner. They're captives. And we're weary. We're weary unto death, aren't we? So what is the good news? You see, only the good news can break through and shine new life into their hearts. You know, I'm I'm so conscious of the fact that as I sit up here and preach the word of God, that there are many of you who listen to me and you put it in the category of back then. (laughs) It's right now, people. That's why I quoted those stats. It's right now. 
You can be free from the addictions that you are experiencing. You can be made whole from the brokenheartedness that you feel. From your weariness, you can receive strength. That's what the good news is about right now, not back then. Right now. It can take a completely confused and lost 19-year-old and transform him into a servant of God. It can take you, however old you are or young, and make you a follower of Jesus Christ. And he will change your life forever. What is the good news? Well, euangelizo means to announce good news. It's found 60, uh, 56 times in the New Testament. It's mostly used by Luke and Paul, to be honest with you. And the essential meaning is derived from the scripture offering or communicating good news. Now, what that good news is, is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, and then willingly offer himself as an acceptable sacrifice to God to pay for sin. That, in a nutshell, is the gospel. The good news. For it's in his death, burial, and resurrection that there is an opportunity for all sins to be forgiven forever to whosoever believes in Jesus Christ. That is euangelizo. That's what I preach from this pulpit. That's what we talk about when we say, are you telling others about Jesus Christ? People need to know this good news if you believe those statistics that I read to you. And believe me, I really reined it in. There were many, many more I could have gone into. I just, why depress you further? This is good news. It's not bad news. And it's news that brings great joy. This is the thing. I mean, if, if suicides are up 400%, right? There's a reason people are checking out. They're, they're more willing to discover what's on the other side which sadly, for many, is going to be hell and separation from God eternally. They're more willing to discover what's on the other side than endure what they're experiencing now. I mean, I'm talking about your neighbors. I'm talking about friends that you have at work. They need this good news. They need a reason for the joy. And the joy comes because of the good news. Everything bad that a person has done, every sin that a person has committed, every wrong that they have done can be forgiven. That is good news. And just the release from a guilty conscience alone is almost like heaven, let alone the promise of eternity in heaven with God where there is no sin or any wicked thing. Released from captivity. You see, when these shepherds were listening to this, they were still smarting under the 70-year captivity. Their adultery and sin had initiated the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles is a time in which God's people, Israel at that time, would become dominated by Gentiles. And believe me, it's still going today. Israel may be a nation, but I'll tell you what, the Gentiles still pull the string in the country of Israel. They still do. They are not free yet. 
right at the very moment when the angel came to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem, they were under the oppressive reign of the Romans. And it was all because of their sin. The golden era of King David was long past now, and they didn't even have rule of their own country. All their affliction, everything that caused their brokenheartedness, their seemingly never-ending subjugation to the Gentiles as captives and prisoners was all due to their sin. And that's why they longed for release. Release from all of that through a Messiah that would come. Now, in stark contrast to their situation, this angel brought them good news of great joy. That the burden of their sin and the punishment that they were experiencing would be taken care of by Messiah. You know, the problem is today is people don't think they're sinners. They don't think they're sinners. So they have no need for a savior, right? So then Ray Comfort's approach to evangelism is a pretty good approach. Talk about the Ten Commandments. Have you ever done this? Have you ever done this? Have you ever done this? And if they're at least a little bit honest, they will have lied. Well, then you're a liar. <laughs> it's a good approach to evangelism. Bring people to the Ten Commandments. You don't bring a person that's under the burden of guilt because of the religious system that they're in. Don't bring them to the Ten Commandments. They're already down low, suffering under the weight of guilt. Bring them the good news of the release that Jesus Christ paid for all of their sins. But to the arrogant, ignorant American, of which there are many, Bring them to the fact that they're sinful and that they need a savior because they're going to face their creator someday. Whether they believe it or not matters not. It just doesn't matter. It's what God thinks of them, not what they think of themselves. So all people of all ages and all locations on the earth have this good news that has been brought to them. Yes, it was originally addressed to Israel, but it's addressed to all people of all nations according to verse 14 in chapter 2 of Luke. It's specifically for the Jews, but it's universally for all who would receive it. And it's news of a Savior, but not just a Savior, of a Messiah, okay? Of a Savior who is Christ, the one that's been promised ever since Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush Satan's head, and he is Lord. So he is a Savior, he is Christ, and he is Lord. The angel told the shepherds today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior. In both accounts of the angel's announcements to Mary and Joseph, God made certain to include the amazing truth that the child Mary was going to give birth to would be the Savior of mankind. Well, she knew exactly what he was talking about. He would save the people, Israel, from their sin. He is Messiah. To Joseph, the angel said, And you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. And to Mary, he said, And you shall name his name Jesus. The proper name Jesus is a Greek in the Greek. And Joshua in Hebrew means the Lord is salvation. And that's what they were to name this little boy. 
Now we know that Jesus himself said of himself that he had come. The Son of Man is come to seek and save that which was lost. And Paul said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what the good news is. But if you don't know you're a sinner, or you don't think of yourself as that bad, then you don't need saving. I I remember somebody rebuking me once when I was young. and I mean, when I first got saved, I just told everybody the gospel. (laughs) To the point that people didn't want to be around me anymore. (laughs) Well, I was so relieved, because I had lived 19 years on the streets, and... (laughs) there was a difference that took over my life, you know. So I wanted to share with them. And one person said, ah, that Jesus stuff, that's for cripples. And I said, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. And I was really crippled. But what do you mean it's for cripples? Are you not crippled? People, they don't even know they're lost. When Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are Messiah, the son of the living God. He knew. He saw him for who he was. But he's not only a savior and Christ, a Messiah, he is also referred to as the seed of Abraham. He is a prophet like unto Moses. He is the seed of the woman. He is also the priest after the order of Melchizedek. This Jesus is the rod out of the stem of Jesse, All prophecies talking about Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. All of them. He is man. He is sinless. He is God. He is sovereign. He is Jesus. He is the Savior. He is Christ. He is Messiah. Does it grip you? Or is it all old hat? Is it all pretty much... In Indonesia, we say bayasa, ordinary. It's just ordinary. Heard it all before. No, friends, you need to let this grip you. This is, this is truth that needs to grab hold of you. Because if it's not grabbing hold of you, why would you ever share it with anybody? Right? If it's not just revolutionizing your life, if you're not seeing victory over your sin, if you're not enjoying the deep joy, even though things may not be going really well for you, Why would you share the truth of the gospel with others? But think back to what he has done in your life. Maybe you need a refresher course. Here's the thing. The crucial point is he's not only a savior, he's not only Messiah who has prophesied and then fulfilled that by coming, he is also Lord. Jesus is Lord. Even in that manger he was Lord. I love the song that we sang. It's a very, very powerful song. This final designation refers to him whom a person or thing belongs. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? All those words, folks. A lot of us will receive him as a savior. A lot of us will acquiesce. Yes, he is the Messiah that was prophesied. But only some really understand his lordship and live like it in their lives. It's a critical, critical part. He is the possessor and 
disposer of all things that we are and all that we have to do with. He is Lord. This is where the birth of Christ becomes very personal. Very personal. Because it is where we see the demand that he makes on our lives. We are no longer the boss of our lives. We don't dictate him where we will go, what we will do, how we will do it. We stretch ourselves out on him and ask for his wisdom, right? Leaning not to our own understanding, but in all our ways, acknowledging him. That's lordship. And that's the crucial key to many who think they know Jesus, but they're still living their own lives, calling all their own shots. Do they really know Jesus? Do they really know Jesus? You see, he is the possessor and disposer of all, everything. He came to save us from sin, yep. And yes, he is the one whom Israel had waited for for so long. He's their king. But for all Gentiles and Jews alike, he is the Lord, and that means we belong to him. It is he that directs our lives, what we're going to do, where we're going to go, who we'll be with, and every other aspect of our lives come under his jurisdiction. Isn't that what happened in the garden? They removed themselves out from under the jurisdiction of their creator and placed themselves under the jurisdiction of the evil one. They believed the lie. You see, the whole world lies in the hand of the evil one. That's what that's talking about. It's a hard way to look at your neighbors and your family members that don't know Christ. But that's what the Bible says. They are in the hand of the evil one, Satan, and the wrath of God hangs over them. (laughs) Just one more reason to share the good news during this season. And really, it's like open season, right? Because it's Christmas. Take it and run with it. Christmas is a time for us to reflect on the birth of Jesus Christ, right? As our Lord and Savior. And I hope today's message has helped you to just see that there's more, much more than a mere baby in a manger or, heaven forbid, Santa Claus or Christmas presents. All things which I really enjoy, to be honest with you. I really do, even Santa Claus. We'll talk about that later. (laughs) The angel's announcement was good news, which was meant to bring great joy because it was an announcement that Jesus was born in the city of David, a Savior, the Christ, but he's also our Lord. Is he your Lord? Only you can answer that question. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this season when it just helps to focus our attention on the fact that you, God, became a man. You became enfleshed. You became part of our race that you created. And that was fallen. But you were not. In all points, you were tempted just as we are, so you can relate to us and we can call out to you for help, but you never sinned. And then you gave yourself 
as a sinless offering acceptable to your Father so that we might have eternal life. We thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name, amen.